Human resources, employee relations, the legal department are aligned against you. Your employer has trained for this day, the day you've become an expendable number at work. There are robust laws that may protect you, but unlike the company, you've not been drilled on how to wield them. You're playing catch-up. There are pitfalls to avoid and countermeasures to deploy that may save your job or put you in the best position to negotiate a favorable settlement. Minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. The Walking Papers podcast offers the first foray into learning how to turn the tables when you've been targeted at work. Knowledge is power. Let's get started. Welcome back to episode three of the Walking Papers podcast. I am here with attorney Josh Van Campen, and today we are doing episode three, Take This Job and Shove It, How Resigning Will Make Your Discriminatory Employer Do a Celebratory Backflip. Josh, where are you coming up with these titles? These are fantastic. Well, back when I was little, Take This Job and Shove It, I Ain't Working Here No More right. was uh, one of my favorite songs. <laughs> Actually, that's that's not true at all. We're, <laughs> we're just trying to be funny with the title. But on a serious note, whether or not to resign at work when a person's being targeted with discrimination or retaliation is is one of the most critical decision points in a case. And it is not an understatement to suggest that discriminatory managers, CEOs, et cetera, will be high-fiving each other when they have someone that they've been targeting resign from work. I mean, I can't tell you how many times someone will arrive in my office with some actually pretty good evidence of discrimination or harassment, and I'll be also high-fiving my staff and saying, we got a good one here, until I find out that, yeah, and they resigned. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we can't prevail in a case, but the job just got a whole lot harder. And so what I hope uh, in this podcast we're able to do is to walk people through the pros and cons of resigning at work when you're under the gun. So in a wrongful termination case, how hard is it to prove discrimination? Well, it's pretty hard. There's a reason why when you, you look online for a personal injury attorney, you can find 500 in your city and you look for an employment lawyer, plaintiff side one, and you find five. <laughs> it's because it's a heavy lift. And, and most lawyers will gravitate to another area of the law where it's easier to, to make a living. And the reason for that is we're having to prove intent. And so the court's expectation, the jury's expectation is that we will prove what was in a decision maker's mind's head as they were deciding whether or not someone would be should be terminated or demoted. And uh, newsflash, they don't admit uh, that they had a discriminatory intent. And so, you know, oftentimes you're pulling pieces of evidence wherever you can find it and balling it together to prove intent. And so it's a hard thing to do to begin with. Right. So what you're saying is don't resign. Well, the problem is if you resign, you you now have introduced a hurdle before you even get to proving intent. And that hurdle is to convince the court that the court should treat your resignation as if you've been terminated. So, you know, the general assumption is that when somebody has resigned, they're doing so voluntarily. So in a situation where somebody has voluntarily resigned, you can't go into a courthouse and say that you've been wrongfully terminated. 
And so what we have to do is prove to the court that they should treat this resignation as if it was a termination. The problem is that where you've resigned, you've essentially dug yourself a hole to get out of. And and we're already dealing with a pretty high wall to get over improving uh, discriminatory intent. And when you've dug yourself a hole of now trying to convince a court that they should treat a resignation as a termination, it's you're, you're having to do it, you know, like a double axle. And that's uh, and a single axle is hard enough to do as it is. So first question, is that something that you can prove? And if so, how? Yeah. Well, the, the legal term for it is constructive discharge. And the test for it is pretty straightforward. You, you have to establish that your working conditions were so intolerable. And that intolerable word is, you know, the, the, the key word in this. So can you give us any situations? Is this like sweatshop labor or? Well, it's, uh, you know, intolerable. It's an objective standard. So if you want to picture your middle of the road, independent voting neighbor on the cul-de-sac, that's the reasonable person standard. And would that person under those circumstances resign because the conditions were so intolerable? So they, it can't, it's not enough just to be, oh, geez, it's inconvenient or I'm not happy at work. You know, the members of the jury have to determine that the situation was intolerable. So if discrimination does in fact exist, but you quit your job and, and, and thus you are stuck having to prove constructive discharge, even if you might have a good discrimination claim, can that constructive discharge claim, if you are not, if you don't prevail on it, can that kind of destroy your case? Well, if you don't, if you can't prove to the court that your conditions were intolerable, the court will never even examine whether or not you were discriminated against because you you bowed out. And so understand that the court's expectation is that where you're being discriminated against at work or harassed, you are expected to stay and fight. And eventually you'll be terminated and then you can sue for wrongful termination. But if you bow out voluntarily, then oftentimes the court's not going to get involved. Right. And is the onus on you to prove that? Yeah. And that's, and again, you you already have to prove discriminatory motive and that, and then yes, you have to prove that the conditions were, were intolerable. You know, going back to the objective standard, it doesn't have to be Gandhi or Nelson Mandela's version of intolerable. I mean, obviously for those two men, their, the fortitude and, and their threshold for pain was incredible. It's, it's not that it's your reasonable, independent neighbor's tolerance for being able to remain at work. So we talked about that a little, and I said sweatshop earlier, a little more tongue-in-cheek, but what are some real-life examples of an intolerable working environment that may support a constructive discharge claim? So, you know, oftentimes proving intolerable working conditions involves a, a cocktail of various different ingredients to hit that threshold. So it's rarely one particular thing. You know, one critical component is if you if you have a supervisor or manager who has suggested to an employee that he resign. So, you know, mo- most people on the cul-de-sac, if you've got your manager saying, you really ought to resign, not necessarily everybody's going to resign in that instance, but some people will. And so that's a that's a really good fact to have. You know, another thing is a reduction in work hours or compensation. So, you know, if you're your employer is reduced, like we saw, talked about, reduced your hours, or all of a sudden, you know, you're not getting overtime anymore, you're denied a raise, and you're having a hard time making ends meet, a reasonable person in that sort of situation may bow out because they can't afford to support their family on, on that amount of money. 
you know, another another factor to consider is, um, and that we see a lot, is that employers will essentially excavate or hollow out the job responsibilities that uh, the plaintiff has, so much so that you're, you go to work and you're essentially twiddling your thumbs and wondering why you're... <laughs> Why are you there? Is another good another good fact to be able to uh, to point to, and then you know in the harassment context, you know obviously if you're dealing with a situation involving physical threats of violence or threats of violence, actual acts of violence, active egregious daily sexual harassment, those things can sort of fast track a case for you know intolerable working conditions. But you know as a general rule. You know, my advice to folks would be the longer that you can stick it out, the better. And, you know, everybody, everybody reaches their breaking point at some point, but usually the employer will meet or will reach the breaking point first and act to terminate. But where you have an employee who has reached his breaking point, you know, there are other options other than resignation, like taking a medical leave, for example, and regrouping. So I know every situation is going to be kind of specific to that person, but are there any circumstances or examples uh, that are just not constructive discharge that someone might think, well, this happened to me, and I think that this probably rises to the level? Are there any that you see frequently that just are not? You know, a lot of it, uh, you know, if it's something that's a reassignment, uh, say, to a different job, your pay hasn't been decreased, it's more of a lateral transfer, you still have substantive responsibilities, but they're different. That's not going to be considered intolerable, for example. Your boss used to take you to lunch every Friday with all the whole rest of the team. And then, you know, you complain to HR and all of a sudden, you know, everybody else goes to lunch, but you're not invited. I might throw that on the heap along with some other conditions to argue something's intolerable. That sort of stuff, standing alone, is not going to be enough. So you ask yourself, is this inconvenient? Does this hurt my feelings? That's not going to be enough. It's going to have to be something that's so serious where you you know you go home at night, you're with your spouse, you're describing what's happening, and in your heart you're saying, "I don't know if I can go another day." Right. I think I think folks will you know know what that gut check moment is, but even when they come to me and they tell me that, I'm still saying, "I can you stick it out a little bit longer?" You know, uh, I'm I'm worried about proving that this is intolerable. All right. So those are the things that are not constructive discharge. But let's say that we think we have a reasonable claim for dis- for constructive discharge. Even having a reasonable claim, does that impact the settlement value of the case? Well, it does, because as an employer is examining its exposure in the case, they're asking two questions. You know, one, are we going to win? And if we lose, what are we going to be on the hook for monetarily? And so where you're dealing with a, a constructive discharge argument, the employer is, has two swings at the plate to win. First, arguing that the situation wasn't intolerable. And then second, that, that we can't prove discriminatory intent. Yeah, so and, they've basically handed you two cases instead of one. Exactly, right. And sometimes that can be okay because you've got such a strong case to argue that the conditions are intolerable, but most of those situations are in the gray area. And I run into it all the time where employers are saying, even if they have a lot of exposure on the money, they're saying, yeah, but we feel like we can win on, on the constructive discharge argument. And if we can just avoid that hole that we're digging out of in the first place, we're, we're on a much more even playing field. And, be, and then you're seeing that reflected in the value of a claim in settlement. Right. So is there – it sounds like resignations are fantastic – 
if you're on the employer's side and you're not trying to pay out a claim of possible discrimination is do you ever run into situations where you see an employer try to maybe reframe what may otherwise be a termination as a resignation? I mean, basically any any HR director is aware that there's a huge tactical advantage to couching something as a resignation. And so you often have times where the employer will, maybe even in obvious, very obvious situations, try to make it look like a resignation even, even when it isn't. So, uh, for example, they may have decided in the meeting, you know what, we're going to fire this person. and uh, But in the termination meeting, let's tell him that we're accepting his resignation. Yeah, you kind of want to get the minutes to that first meeting, huh? Right. <laughs> and, so, and, and we will eventually. But the employers will absolutely try to be cute in getting you to say that you've resigned. They may even, may even talk about how, well, if you resign, we'll give you a positive reference. Right. That's a bad deal if you've got a strong discrimination case. So is that a reasonable claim to bring in front of a judge and jury? If that's your only argument, which is to say in your termination meeting, they said uh, they would accept my resignation. Obviously, that's not intolerable. You know, you just fell for a trap is what you did. <laughs> so, um, you know, in that sort of scenario in the termination meeting, and we'll have a separate podcast just on navigating a termination meeting. But um, yeah, don't, don't fall into that trap of, of resigning. So in closing, do you have any advice, any countermeasures that they can deploy or pitfalls to avoid? Always. <laughs> so when it comes to countermeasures, uh, one is if you can get your supervisor to admit that he wants you to resign, that's golden. That doesn't mean you should, but that admission is huge. And you'd be surprised how often, you know, a supervisor may, you know, it could go something like this. It's like, you know, listen, I, I know you say that you're not happy with my performance. I would just really appreciate it if you just be real with me and, and allow me to be real with you. Are you saying that you want me to go? You know, something like that in a disarming way. I mean, all you're really trying to do there is get your supervisor to tell the truth. So that's a good one. You know, another countermeasure is if, if, if you're at your breaking point, you know, you have rights under the Family Medical Leave Act if your employer is large enough and you've worked there long enough. Uh, to take up to 12 weeks of medical leave. And so taking those periods of R&R are always a better option than resigning when you're at your breaking point. And an added benefit to that is that you're then covered, you know, you're protected from being retaliated against oftentimes for taking these medical leaves. Uh, so it's, it's another deterrent for folks to get terminated in that sort of scenario. And as far as pitfalls go, sometimes people under the gun are tempted to wave their hand and say, hey, uh, I hear that you're considering early separation packages. I'm interested. <laughs> well, um, you know, that uh, oftentimes you're given what you're asking for, which is to be fired. And you may not like that early separation package. So it, it's another trap to avoid of of essentially volunteering that you you want to go. You don't want to give any indication that you want to go. We want employers because the employer wants you to go and we want the employer to pay you to go on your own terms. And so if you're signaling that you're going to go anyway, you've removed that bargaining capital that you have, which is to, you know, be paid for your employer's desire for you to go. You know, another pitfall is the gracious resignation letter. You know, if you're resigning under conditions uh, where it's involuntary, essentially intolerable conditions to you, please don't write a gracious resignation letter that you don't mean. In fact, 
you know, they don't teach you this in business school, but write a resignation letter that actually tells the real truth why you're leaving. And then finally, if you do uh, end up resigning, you may need a vacation really bad, but uh, don't go on one. <laughs> right after he resigned. I mean, uh, is that going to be uh, kind of the employer's uh, exhibit one? Aha. Exactly. Right. And of course, she went to Cancun and, you know, you, you, you put some stuff up on Facebook. It didn't look all that distressed then, did you? Right. And you know what? Your manager, he does stup- stupid things on Facebook too, but he's not the one bringing the lawsuit. Uh, sure. You are. And so we need to be squeaky clean on our social media posts. Right. Perfect. Well, we have covered a lot of ground here today. So join us next week on episode four, where we will be discussing how to prove your discrimination case. And we will be weaving in a quote from a few good men. So we will see you next week. Congratulations for taking an important initial step in turning the tables at work. But this podcast is just an educational resource. It does not constitute legal advice and is no substitute for consulting an employment attorney about your unique situation before making legal decisions. Visit our website for more online resources and videos at ncemploymentattorneys.com. Or better yet, call 704-247-3245 for a free initial intake interview so Van Camp and Law can evaluate your case. Until next time, keep your head up and your wits about you. 